All right, welcome to Professor Latinx podcast, and we have this extraordinary author, this amazing opportunity here at the Ohio State University. We have Fernando Flores. Fernando Flores is here with me today for Professor Latinx podcast. I am. Yeah, and Fernando, wow, Fernando, born in Reynosa, Mexico, but raised just a stone's throw away in Texas, in Alton, Texas seemed destined, at least from my perspective, to become a creator of the borderlands, raised to kind of grown in and through the borderlands, attending the University of Rio Grande Valley, which was the University of Texas Pan Am, but you know, I decided that wasn't exactly for him. We're going to probably talk a little bit about that. Um, decided while he was, you know, working as a sound tech to gorge himself on world fiction and Borges, Cortazar, Conrad, all those, Bolaño. When I read uh, Fernando's work, I think of this, I think of it pulsating in and through his stories, his fiction, his novels. But I also think of punk, the offbeat right, punk, the clash. I think Jodorowsky, I think David Lynch, you know, I think, you know, all of these things as coming together to make something new, to show us something new, to make us feel something new about the borderlands. In 2019, Tears of the Truffle Pig came out. Wow. (sighs) Wrote quit, you know, in this blaze, in this blaze. And uh, he's here f- to talk to us. Um, and so, yeah, Fernando, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here, Frederick, and Ohio State University for being so welcoming to uh, to me here in the last few days. I love it. And I love that you've got your camera, right? Your I Nikon, do. man. Yeah, I got I to gotta be ready. I got to be ready. Your SLR, I, which, you know. I you don't, yeah, I haven't taken a single photograph, but you never know what's going to yeah. happen. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm hoping something will, like, you know, jump thank out you. from yeah, here. Thank you. Most definitely. Me too. Me too. Yeah, thank you very much. So um, we're, I want to get to your fo- photography in, in, in just a second here. But, you know, the thing that's kind of fresh on the minds of everybody right now is this tears of the truffle pig that's i mean you know it's just mind-blowing i think of you know this this kind of alice in wonderland rabbit hole borderlands narrative that's just like blowing your mind yeah thank Uh, you yeah yeah you know the project you know i wrote i wrote the project in uh i started writing the project on october 6th 2014 and uh the process took like three months of writing it on a on a typewriter on my Olivetti. I for those three months I wrote pretty much every day, with the exception of like six or seven days where I visited South Texas for a while. But it's a story that is still kind of mysterious to me. To me, it seems to have like a life of its own, and I seem to be. I carry myself more like the person who dictated the story. I mean, who uh, who wrote the story as this weird entity or entities uh, dicta- uh, dictated the story to me, and I just wrote the whole thing. I'm the person who wrote it down, you know? Like a cipher, like, you know, this kind of blaze where it's just coming right Definitely, out. you know, and it was the first time that I ever really approached uh, writing a novel and this technique that I had been developing really for a few years, uh, and it started mostly writing short stories in the, this experimental form. The way I... I I phrased it back then is that I wanted to write the most unpublishable stories out there, you know. And whenever I thought about, like, Mexican-American literature, what we call Mexican-American or Chicano literature or Latinx literature, you know, 
uh, we never think we 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 think about all these uh, realist narratives that have been uh, have been written in the last fifty years, and I wanted to explore all these territories that I felt were uh, untouched by our people and our literature, you know, and. Uh, it's something that I still continue trying to explore and trying to learn more about and trying to push myself as a writer and as a creator to, I guess, uh, to write these stories down. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, um, people talk about speculative fiction, science fiction, and I'm, you know, you were talking about kind of bringing the stories of our people, um, giving them a, a form, like a shape. And it's almost like we don't have to think about choosing the speculative or the science fiction. That is like our form, Definitely, yes, I believe so. You know, whenever we think about uh, literature in the Americas, you know, it's really only like 500 years old, you know, uh, ever since since 1492. I mean, what, what what are the texts that have been written since, you know? And I was really interested in trying to, I guess, learn more about in this, I guess, maybe perhaps in this spiritual way, uh, the stories that have existed in the Americas before this time, you know. And I'm willing to bet anything that the stories that existed in these lands before 1492, even after that, are these crazy, fantastical narratives, you know, with personifications of, you know, the wind and elements and nature, and all these things that just seem to have gotten lost with colonization and the written word and the oral storytelling tradition that the 20th century did a lot to pretty much kill through media, through all these new media that just seem to have exploded. So uh, to me, it was really, really important to try to touch touch on, on these things that I felt were lost and in this way that... I guess there was no, there was very, very little uh, things for me to read out there and for me to t- take in. So writing this project was a very, very, like a spiritual, chaotic ordeal for me. You know. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, uh, elsewhere, you talk about it as an alternate reality border story. Definitely. Yeah. 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 You know. Uh, and I and like I said, I started writing this in 2014. You know, I was really interested in uh, trying to capture these themes and everything that existed in the border at the time that I felt were weren't really captured in literature or any kind of art. You know, in this in Tears of the Truffle Pig, there's two border walls with a controversial third border wall being built, and. And it wasn't until like a few, like the next year, a few years later, after I had finished written it, writing it, that uh, these things entered the, our mainstream dialogue. Not only here in the U.S., but all, all of a sudden, the entire world became aware of all these things, you know. And I, around that time, also the whole El Chapo thing also reached the mainstream. You know, all of a sudden, everybody knew who El Chapo was. You know. So all these themes and all these things that were, were existed in my book in this speculative, alternate manner. And when I say that, I also have to embrace the term minimalist manner because to me, this story was a very, was a walking a tightrope between minimalism and maximalism. You know, there's very, very huge things in it and very, very small things. And trying to balance those things out during the course of the narrative was very, very, was, was a, a procedure, you know, was something that I had to very, be very, very conscious of. 
While we're on the topic of cartels, um, tell our audience a little bit about how you kind of imagine or reimagine um, that space in Tears. Yes, Tears of the Truffle Pig takes place in a world after this huge food shortage happens. And it kind of inspires these uh, scientists to create this method called the, that they call the, the filtering method, which is that they use these troughs to in, to grow fruits and vegetables in this accelerated, accelerated manner. Uh, and it eventually evolves into uh, being able to grow farm animals in this uh, accelerated manner. And drugs have been legalized, so all these syndicates and all these kingpins that were uh, left without a trade kind of hijack this technology for their own sinister ways to bring back it, these uh, extinct species. And even and in the end, whenever they bring back the extinct species through the filtering method, it only has like a lifespan of like eight weeks. So, so they, so either when they grow like exo- uh, exotic birds, they'll pluck their feathers and sell them in the art market, or you know they'll. Uh, you know, if you can have this ex- extinct a bird that, that had been extinct, and you have you can have it in your living room and show it off at parties. You know, that has an, an immense uh, wealth attached to it, and uh, and it kind of takes place in the, on the in the border. And our protagonist is this widower who named Esteban Bellacosa, who suffered a major loss during the food shortage, and his brother. Uh, has been his a brother who's he's ex, ex, uh, estranged from uh, is kidnapped by this headhunting syndicate in South Texas and the syndicates that do not have the technology to uh, deal with filtering uh, kidnap people who have dark skin and they uh, cut their heads off and shrink them in a manner that keeps their skull intact and makes the, the their heads more valuable and sells them to uh, the underground art market as well. Yeah, amazing. I mean, uh, when I read this book, I read it cover to cover, and it was like dropping me into a kind of pool of, you know, LSD kind of meets like, a, you know, taco truck meets like <laughs> El Chapo, yeah, that, you yeah. know, it yeah. was wild, man, but also very deeply, deeply thought provoking in terms of, you know, how we continue to live out legacies of colonization, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and all these things, all these major themes in the book uh, are there and, you know, and I try to, uh, I tried to kind of use it in a very, very minimalist manner. You know, all these things are very peripheral in the narrative. And it was very, very important to me to have all these major themes in it, and to, but to not have them be in the, fore, the foreground of my narrative. Everything is kind of just there lingering. You know, I always remember this quote by Chekhov that I don't necessarily agree with, but... Uh, the quote is something like, I have no use for landscapes with no people in them. And I think that it was, uh, I guess, a, in a way for him to criticize, I guess, the type of naturalist art that existed at the time. But to me, like, I I, I had the setting the set of the border, this alternate border. But to me, what was important was the people living in it and this reality and how people managed to live their lives around these tragedies that are there every day, you know? You know, something that maybe might surprise our listeners um, is that it, there's, it's also funny. 
Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of humor in in Thank tears. You. Right? Yeah, you know, I one of the other things that was very important to me in writing that very influential was uh, the Russian constructivist movement uh, in the turn of the 20th century. Uh, all these Russian writers like Daniel Harms or even visual artists like Natalia Gonchorova, who whose work. Uh, was outside of the socialist realism that was embraced by the government and the censors at the time. So if you were writing like something that was absurdism or anything like that, you have a hard time getting anything published and you pretty much starve and stuff. So to me, it was very important to, in a performative manner, approach this project in the sense of like, okay, I'm from South Texas. What if it was against the law? to write about immigration? What if it was against the law to write about racism and all these things? And and, and if you do want and if you did want to incorporate these themes into your writing, you had to kinda of, kinda of smuggle them into your narrative. You had to kind of just very subtly have them in there. So and absurdism to me is uh, a big part of a protest, a protesting. You know, we think about we think about uh, these signs that people make when they go to a protest. A lot of them are funny. A lot of them are absurd. You know, and I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, how you how, how do I how would I say it? a lot of you know power in absurdism against totalitarianism or against big government because. These big government people usually lack a sense of humor and stuff like that. So absurdism, to me, does a lot in, uh, in, in is very important in protesting, you know, in protest literature and everything. And I'm also very, very, uh, I guess, careful or uh, I don't know. Whenever I read something and it's too stark and it's too serious, I kind of don't. You know, I, I see kind of like the the how contrived everything is because, you know, in life, no matter how dark things get, we always have these moments of humor, these moments of absurdism that carry us through to the next thing, you know, carry us from tragedy to tragedy, you know. Uh, life isn't all just doom and gloom and tragedy, you know. So, and to me, to... To me, there's a lot of these things that are very, very funny. Like the idea of of one border wall is absurd, you know. So to me, five border walls, two or three border walls is just as absurd as one, you know. So if you're going to say build that wall, you know, build five walls, build those walls, you know, it's just as absurd as as one. So all these uh, policies and everything are usually really absurd if you kind of lay them down, you know. If you look at the things like the president or anybody says, it's super absurd, you know, and people take it very, very seriously because of the person who said it, you know. So to, for me, trying to reclaim these things, uh, humor and absurdism in uh, on border literature and Mexican-American literature was very, very important because uh, I felt... It very very necessary for you know to speak against power and stuff like that through mm -hmm. literature and art mm -hmm. so um fernando your journey has been atypical um if we're talking about you know journey to become an fsg published author yes right? yes um Maybe you can share with our audience a little bit. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of my students here at Ohio State University and elsewhere that I mentor 
think that MFA programs is the way to become a creative writer. It's, and it's not. It's not the only way, right? Yeah. Well, you know, when I started writing seriously, I want to say it was around 2004, I started really taking it seriously. And at the time, uh, I had no idea how people became writers. And perhaps, you know, MFA programs weren't as huge then as they are now. And it was still kind of in this stage of becoming what it is now, you know. So I had no idea how people became writers right then, back then, you know. If I looked at the biographies of the writers that I admired at the time, none of them said that they had got their MFAs anywhere. So I just, you know, maybe in a, maybe in a, maybe in a dumbly way, I just started writing stories myself, you know. And I, I, at the time, I worked at the at University of, the, of uh, Texas Pan Am. I think it was called at the time, and I was a video technician. And uh, I worked just enough hours, under 40 hours, that they kept me, that I didn't get any benefits and everything. I, I think they just had me like at 34 or 36 hours. And I kind of resented that after a while. So I was like, you know, who cares? Nobody here cares about me. I don't really do much here. So uh, I would escape. I realized that nobody ever kept tabs on me. So I would escape to the library at the time. I don't think I had a library card. And... Uh, I, excuse me. At the time, I hadn't really read a lot of Mexican American writers. That happened a few years after that. But the turning point for me were two writers that I read around 2004, 2003, maybe. And one of them was Janet Frame, and I, uh, a writer from New Zealand. And I cannot remember how I found her book or why it is I even started reading it. But uh, I, I remember picking it up and I read a couple of her short stories. And I can never remember the title of the story. It's either The Lagoon or The Reservoir or something like that. And the story was about how her and her sisters, when they were kids, and uh, her and, and the other kids in the neighborhood, they'd go to this canal or something. And there was this, and there's this pipeline, this thick pipeline that went from one end of the canal to the other. And the kids, some of the daring kids would cross it, you know, and it became like a challenge for the kids to cross it. And if you crossed the other side, you were like a big kid. You were strong, you know. And sometimes a, a little kid would want to cross it, and they'd get scared, and then the other kids would make fun of that kid. And I had never at the time read a story that I related to so much, you know. It reminded me of when I was a kid in South Texas. We did the exact same thing with this irrigation canal. And I thought that was so strange at the time that this writer who... I had never heard of from this country that I'd never even been, uh, or, or even I knew where it was in the map, how a story can just speak so deeply to me in that sense. And after that, that was my turning point with literature. Finally, I, I felt that I got it, you know. And then another, and then just shortly after that, uh, and for the same, like, the same reason, I, I mean, the same way, I, I have no idea how I came across this book, but I remember picking up Journey to the End of the Night by Louis Ferdinand Celine. At the end of the, at the time, I didn't know anything about Celine. You know, I know he's a controversial figure. He's he says a lot, said a lot of crazy things, did a lot of crazy things. But at the time, this book, Journey to the End of the Night, I opened it. It has like two or three epigraphs or something. And in the intro, I read the introduction in it, and the introduction is written by him for the reissue of it. I think, and he said something that really stuck with me at the time. I thought it was hilarious. He said something that if it wasn't for needing the really needing the money, he would put the book away. He'd never get the book published, you know, because it's caused so many things that he doesn't feel a part of, you know. So I th I never read anything anything like that at the time, and and that's when and 
the way Celine's book is written, you know, he kind of alternates between present and past tense. So at the time, I didn't really know how to write, and I didn't, I never really wrote anything in the proper tense ever. So it gave me the courage to keep writing, even though technically I wasn't as capable a writer. You know, it took me many, many years to be able to uh, be happy with or to really to, to learn all these things that you can easily learn in a writing class, you know. But at the time, I had no idea, you know. Uh, and when I looked around and saw the Mexican-American writers or people from the South Texas who had published books, they usually publish with, like, a university press. I never felt uh, that, you know, getting a book published by FSG or any any big press was something that was accessible to a person like me. I didn't even, I didn't even know how the publishing industry worked. I didn't know any of those things. So, so I just wrote a bunch of stories, you know, and I was the kind of writer, uh, somebody gave me a typewriter at the time, you know, I have, my hands are always sweaty. I have sweaty hands. So it gave me the courage to write and to not care about messing up, you know. So I'd write so many stories and some that a lot, m- most of them that I never transcribe and that are there, you know. Tears of the Truffle Book is my first published novel, but if I'm going to be honest, it's really like my fourth novel that I've written, you know. <coughs> and uh, uh, so uh, at that time, like around 2005, uh, I ran into some problems in South Texas and I moved to Austin. And that's when my life really changed. It really gave me uh, distance from everything that I knew. I hardly knew anybody in Austin. I got a job working, washing dishes at a pizza restaurant. And I was very, very content in washing dishes, going home and reading whatever I was reading and trying to write a short story or two, you know. Eventually, I wrote a novel, and I was so happy about that, you know. Uh, but then, uh, but also, also, the whole thing is like a learning process all the time, you know. Uh, like around 2007, 2008, my story started getting super weird. You know, so I, by then I'd read Mexican American authors. I, met, I read Sandra Cisneros at the time. You know, I read other other canonical. Work. I revisited a lot of works, uh, Mexican American works. You know, by Dagoberto Gilb. You know, uh, Rudolf Anaya. Even like from the early 20th century, like uh, George Washington Gomez. I think it's called. And uh, what is it, the underdogs? You know, I read, I read that. Even though that, you know, uh, so uh, I really, really started to, and also read a lot of like sur- poetry and a lot of really surrealist stuff that I'd never really understood. And I kind of forced myself to, to I forced my reading. You know, I didn't understand a lot of things like Shakespeare. I never took a class on Shakespeare. And I never really understood the language until I forced myself to understand the language and to really, to read it. And one day I remember just sitting in my room and finally I got it. Finally I got Shakespeare's language and I was, and and it just clicked with me. Like everything else just eventually clicked with me, you know. So around 2008 I started really submitting stories. I had already had a couple of short stories published, but they were very, very realist narratives and very, very uh, much like, the plight of the immigrant kind of narratives, you know, and I really and I realized that every time every time I, sub, I submitted something to like a, a publication geared towards Mexican American uh, writers or Chicano writers, uh, I'd be I'd be rejected most a lot of the time, you know. And the weirder my stories were, the the you know I got the more rejections I got from these publications, and 
eventually I kind of realized that these publications were very, very conservative in their aesthetics, you know. And I realized that I needed to branch out at the time. But also, instead of trying to write these stories that I knew that they'd be published, that I, had more, I knew that we had more of a chance of being published, I rebelled against that entire thing. And I uh, started trying to write what I called like the most unpublishable stories that I could, you know, which is how my sh- first short story collection, Death to the Bullshit Artists of South Texas, came, came by. Came. And, uh, and uh, from then on, you know, I, every time I got a rejection, I just, something just changed in my brain. And I just thought that rejections were hilarious, you know. Every time I got a rejection, I thought it was the funniest thing, you know. Sometimes I submitted stories with, with, arbitrary uh, titles just so they, I can read it back to me. Back then, it was possible to get a rejection letter through snail mail because a lot of my, my sub- the submissions around that time, you, they'd accept a snail mail su- submissions. I remember having a short story, uh, writing a short story, and I, call, I think I called it the, the, vulture, the Vultures Ate My Dead Ass Up. And uh, it was a story about... Uh, it, was, it was a story about, you know, I think it was kind of autobiographical about some writer who's living in a shack and then all of a sudden he grows wings, you know? And it was, it was you know, it's perhaps not the most original concept or anything, but I just thought it was hilarious. I submitted the story. I got rejected by everybody. I remember seeing the title of the story. Your, Dear Mr. Flores, your story, The Vultures Ate My Dead Ass Up, you know, is rejected or whatever. And I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was so funny. And, uh, you know, eventually like three or four years of that, I said, stop being funny, you know, being rejected. And, and, I, and I started kind of learning about the publishing industry. By, this, by then, I'd been, I was 29 years old. I'm 37 now. I was 29. I was about to be 30. And I started thinking what I had done with my life. You know, I'm like, I'm going to be 30 years old. What have I really done? And if I really sat and thought about it, I really have done nothing. I've gotten good at nothing in my life. The only thought, thing that I had realized that I really pursued and tried to be good at was literature, was writing stories and perhaps my photography, you know, things that I had just been doing regularly throughout my 20s. And, uh, and that's when I realized, you know, it's, I'm either going to keep doing this or I'm going to try and get a legit job somewhere. And I realized that I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to keep living my life and writing stories, you know. Eventually, this little, uh, this little uh, kind of like a Ponzi scheme, literary Ponzi scheme out of Chicago. This guy running a literary Ponzi scheme out of Chicago from a little room uh, offered to publish some of my stories in a little book format, you know. And that's how the first volume of Death to the Bullshit Artist came about. It was the first 30,000 words of the manuscript, the first seven stories. And he put it out in these handmade books that he made 200 copies of. They were little beautiful books, you know. Eventually I realized this guy was running a little Ponzi scheme. He was depending on the original, you know, everybody who everybody knows a group of people who will buy a book if they put it out. So he'd, he always depended on that little burst, and then he'd move on to the next thing. So every, every month he'd put out like five different authors. Eventually, you know, when you're... An unpublished uh, author, you really you you would do anything to have a book published. So, uh, 
So I went with him, and then when I realized that it was a Ponzi scheme or whatever, I backed I backed off of it. But luckily, you know, even though only 200 copies of that little book was made, a lot of them got into just the right hands, you know. And these two, uh, these two uh, artists and writers from San Antonio nominated me. At the time, Sandra Cisneros had the Alfredo Cisneros del Moral Prize. And uh, a man named Ben Olguin, who teaches in Santa Barbara, in UC Santa, Bar- uh, Santa Barbara, and this legend from San Antonio named Greg Barrios, they both nominated me for the prize. And even though I didn't win, I was awarded a sum of money. I was awarded $10,000. And within a week of getting that money, I was laid off from being a barista. During all this time, I was a barista, waking up at 5.45 in the morning, you know, making coffee for people. And at night, I would work, I wash dishes at a French restaurant a lot of the time. So uh, when this happened, it was like a huge miracle for me, you know, checking my email every day, you know. It, eventually, of course, I didn't win. I got $10,000. Within a week of that happening, I got laid off. I got, and I got hired at a bookstore to work only two days a week. So to me, it was, it's now or never. They gave me this amount of money. I'm working two days a week. This has never happened in my life. I've never had the time. I've never had any kind of money to be able to just focus on my writing, so that's why Tears of the Truffle Pig was written in three months, just out of that fear driving me that I was going to run out of money and I would have nothing to show for it, you know. I, I, I didn't care if I ran out of money and I had a manuscript, if I had a finished manuscript, you know. So, you know, I made the money last for like five, six months, and by then I already had the finished draft and I had put it into the computer, you know. Amazing. <laughs> um, famously, uh, at least, you know, famously for you know us writers, you did this on a typewriter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and again, you know, it's nothing that I very you know I wasn't going I wasn't trying to be daring or anything at all. It was just uh, necessity. You know, it's just the necessity of the time. You know, and I've come to depend on like the violence of writing on a typewriter. You know, having those sounds there. You know, I'm away from the computer. You know, it's like a, it allows me to wear a different. A brain, I say. It's like my first, my first brain in writing the story. You know, it's it's you know unfiltered. It's just on the page. You know, if you screw up three fourths of the way in a page, you're not gonna throw it away. You know, and I remember when I first started writing a typewriter around 2005, 2004, and I would crumple a page and throw it away, and nothing made me feel like a big failure like that. So since those, since when I realized this, I would never ever throw a page. And since and and I, I I rarely rarely crumple a page and throw it away. You know, I I like to face the page. You know, that's why I like uh, I like writing on a piece of paper. You know, if you fail on the page, you get to feel it in your hands and you feel the failure there in your hands. You know, and to me, it was very very important to be able to see my shortcomings in that manner, you know. It, it gives me a different, it makes it more real than having it into the computer and copy and pasting and stuff like that, you know. Incredibly, too, you managed to <laughs> hold at bay um, social media and the internet. Yeah, and the same way, you know, I never really had a good computer uh, when our, when doing this techno- te- technology shift happened. So I lived in this shack, you know, I lived very minimalistically, and 2005, 2006, 2007. And then this technology shift happened, and I was just not a part of it. And uh, 
I didn't, to be honest, I didn't care to be a part of it, you know. In my life, every time that I try to be part of a community, every time I try to be part of the cool kids or whatever, I always fail miserably. So I learned that, and I'm like, okay, I, I'm never going to be part of this, uh, of a group or whatever. I can only succeed if I do this, like, lone wolf kind of things that I ended up being content with myself, you know. Now I do have social media. I mean, I have an, my, just my Instagram account now, but uh, and I, I, I pretty much just use it for my photography now. I just I can just I can hi, I can still hide behind it. I can post a photograph and you know forget about it. Speaking of photography, so yeah, the um, a couple things came up, right? So first, you know, death death to the bullshit artists. You know, you have these sort of fictive punk rock right musician characters, and then of course you've got your your Nikon SLR with you right now. Yeah, totally. Yeah, from my Nikon Nikon FM2 is from 1982. You know, I've had it since 2005. When I first bought it, I bought it from this this uh, Romanian man who fixes cameras in Austin. Uh, I think he's still he's still around. But and I remember in 2005 when he was selling it to me, I bought I bought it, I bought it off of him 250 dollars and. And uh, when he sold it to me, he told me, you know, this camera is better than a Leica, you know, and it's all mechanical. It can take a, miraculously, it can take a photograph at one four thousandth of a second and all mechanically with no, you know, no, no electric shutter at all. So when he sold me that camera, he told me it was better than Leica. I thought, you know, this, what, this guy is just running a line on me. But now I believe it. I've had this camera 15 years. I've never had a problem with it. So, the, I mean, you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, music in your life, uh, photography, other arts. You know, we, totally. a, a lot of people say, well, what are your influences? And they're thinking, you know, literary. But I want to know about, like, you totally. know, all this stuff that's like, you know, you you love and you're passionate about. Yeah, to- totally. Well, I'm the product of various music scenes from South Te- from both South Texas and also music and art scenes, you know. Most of my friends have always been musicians, you know. Uh, during all these times when I'm writing, you know, I never had anybody read my stories. Nobody ever read my stories, but my friends were always musicians. They were always around me. Only the people closest in my life knew that I even was a writer. If you were to see my living space, you would see my books and my pages and my typewriter and that I really own little else, you know. So uh, I was very also influenced by the discipline of musicians, you know. Uh, Musician, a, a band, no matter how, you know, problematic or bad they are, they always have to haul that equipment and they have to practice a couple of days a week, you know. A lot of the times I was neighbors with bands that would uh, practice, you know, and uh, and I would kind of... Uh, I would kind of soak in their energy and at the time and try to funnel it into my own work, you know. So I was very, very much influenced by the discipline of 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 these these uh, musicians in, in my life, you know. And I kind of incorporated that into my own self discipline for writing. So and and a lot of the, the, the like the I guess the rebellious nature of these groups and the, these these aesthetics from South Texas really carried into my writing at the time. And around 2010 or so, a friend of mine asked me just out of, you know, out of nowhere, asked me if I would uh, uh, play in his klezmer band. We play like klezmer and Greek music, you know, and I agreed. I agreed just joking, you know, and then the next day he shows up with a bass in my house 
And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to learn these old songs or whatever, learning these Klezmer songs from like 100 years ago, uh, Greek songs from like 300 years. We, I remember we learned this, uh, we learned this Scottish song from the 13th, from the 14th century. Uh, and the way that I could learn the songs is if uh, me and Chris, who my, my friend, sat down and on a piece of paper kind of, outline the song okay so he teach me the motif of the song which is like the riff or whatever and okay and we write the timeline of the song okay at this point the motif ends and then the little bridge happens and then we go back to the motif you know and then you see it on a piece of paper you see the landscape of the song you know and from then on I started I, I guess viewing also literature in a different way you know I started kind of seeing it in the sense of, of music too and uh, like even like even now like when like when you listen to like the Yardbirds or even like some Chopin songs, there's he always they always have like a motif or a riff that they go and then like three fourths of the way through the song, the song kind of destroys itself, and all these chaotic things happen, and then towards in the last like little bit of the song, they go back to the original motif of the song, you know. So uh, these are things that I try to incorporate. I, I learned about my uh, aesthetic and my writing. You know, whenever I write a story, I'm like, okay, I can be super weird in this one part if I go back to the original motif, which is the original uh, rhythm of the of the of the narrative. You know, so even in, in Tears of the Truffle Pig, there's a couple of parts in there where I where it kind of goes off into like the psychedelic kind of experience or narrative and then i just go back to like a regular scene you know and that's something that i really derived from music and from uh music scenes and the people around me at the time you know you've also had um you had an exhibit of your photography uh, or exhibits um and well you mentioned instagram as a space to really kind of well maybe your sort of your ongoing exhibit uh, where do you see photography in this sort of creative life you have? You know, because because I was a certain kind of writer and I guess photographer, uh, uh, it gave me, you know, I, when I was a teenager, I'd watch like four, four or five movies a day, you know. I watched foreign cinema. I, I was very, very well, by the time I was 20, 21, I was very well-rounded, very, very in cinema. You know, when I was a teenager, uh, the American Film Institute released the 100 best American movies and what they thought were the 100 best American movies. And when that list came out, I remember printing it out. I was still in high school. I was probably like 14, 15. And I went on a mission. I wanted to watch every one of these movies, you know. And I eventually did, you know. And from then, uh, I, I, I branched out into like foreign movies and stuff at the time. <coughs> and uh, so when I... So... Uh, I started trying to make movies, and I realized it was so difficult. You know, you, you you need so many things to make a movie. You need actors, you need a camera person, you need the technology, the lights, and everything. You need so many things. So uh, eventually, I, when I, I got into literature and writing around 2004, I realized that I could just tell stories and not have to depend on anybody to be good. You know, try and be good. You know, and at the time when I and I also got my camera. And since I had to work, work and to survive and stuff, and no, like I said, nobody ever gave me the time to be creative or anything at all. I used photography as you know as an excuse to be creative. You know, you know, no matter where I was, no matter where I'd go, I had my camera with me. So 
even if I'm not really being creative, it gives me the excuse. Like if I see a, uh, something to take a photograph of, I take it. And, it. and I wouldn't feel like I wasted a day, you know. And to me, that was very important when I was younger. I never wanted to waste a day. So I never wanted a day to go by where I wouldn't read a short story even or like a poem. or. So whenever I'd go off to like family functions or do anything, I always had my camera with me because the possibility is always there when you have the camera or when you have... Uh, when you, when I'm, and when I, and I, I'm not really, I wasn't really the kind of writer that I can just write anywhere, you know. I, ca- I got to write behind my typewriter. So if I'm away from my typewriter, uh, I, it, for a long enough time, or my books even, I feel very creatively stifled. So having my camera really helps me, even if I don't take a single photograph. Like on this trip, I haven't taken a single photograph, but it, but the possibility is always there, you know, which is the important part for me. Poetry. Are you still writing poetry? I still write poetry. I really have not uh, done it in a few years, but I, I always read poetry, and I'm always uh, I'm always influenced by it. I always try to read poetry and plays and things or things that I'm really I I rarely uh, I rarely do do anymore, but it's still very much a part of my aesthetic, you know. So as we kind of wind this down, um, <coughs> Fernando. Um, I'm wondering, you know, so Tears has been out for a little while now. Um, you've done, you know, readings. You're off t- back to Texas for the Texas Book Festival um, tomorrow even. Um, <clears throat> what's the – how has it been received? And have there been – or should should I ask, have there been any surprises, you know, that, you know, you've put this thing out in the world and like, wow, I, I had no idea that, you know – these people were reading it this way or this audience or, you know, yeah. Definitely. You know, uh, if I'm going to be honest, the main thing that I've learned since this book's published like five, six months already is how little uh, Mexican-American first-time novelists there are out there, you know. If I think about it and I ask myself how many debut Mexican-American novelists have been published by a major press since 2012. I'd be scared to make that list right there. I can think of one person other than myself, you know, under 40 years old, or even, you know, not, you know. But a date, and that's what I've really observed, you know. I've I've really seen the lack of Mexican-American writers that are being published by major presses, you know. And uh, and I don't have the answers to to why or anything like that. It's just something that I've I've observed, and that really just hit me recently. You know, even being here like in OSU, you know, uh, and being anywhere, you know, for the book, it's for the book itself. I see how you know how, what a lack of I guess representation there exists, and you know. If we do think of the Mexican-American writers that have been published, even since, if I'm going to be generous, let's say since 9-11, in the last 18 years, how many Mexican-American writers have been published by a major uh, press, their debut outside of literary realism? And even then, and that's even smaller than anything else, and that is what has been the most like mind blowing thing for me, you know, and which makes me feel 
I guess the important of the importance of these kinds of narratives, uh, and to, I guess, try and push myself to be a better creator. I guess, and to keep trying to uh, push myself to capture these narratives that aren't being uh, that I feel aren't being uh, public captured or published. If they are, nobody is putting them out or something, you know. But I feel that I feel that there's definitely room. There's definitely an audience out there that is looking for these kinds of narratives and stories, uh, and uh, yeah, and that's my answer to that. I'm hungry yeah. for them. Um, yeah. So, and this can be you know a short you know response, but um, yeah, what you know on that same subject, what's next, or what are you working on now, and are can you really talk about it? And yeah, what? well, you know, uh, I always approach my. A different style to uh, every project. I don't think that I could ever write another novel in three months, you know. Uh, but at the time when I was looking for an agent and when I was looking to get this book published uh, to distract myself, I started writing a different project, and I had a different rule for this project. Uh, where I'm only write, I would only write it like three or four sentences at a time, uh, a week, three or four sentences a week, and eventually. <laughs> And you, without thinking about characters or plot, or even though there there's characters and plots in the new story, but eventually I had like forty thousand words of this project, and I'm like, oh my god, this is a this is a new project, a new kind of style, a new kind of approach. But you know, it, suddenly it became real. You know, at first I was just uh, using this project as a distraction, and now finally the book is out, and I and and now this project that I was using as a distraction became my project that I'm working on now, my 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 main project, and uh, and it it's it's uh, it takes place perhaps in a different kind of uh, world as as this as Tears of the Truffle Pig, but I'm still kind of. You know, writing Tears of the Truffle Pig, uh, I had to deal with this. I had to be real about dealing with this very, I guess, masculine world in the sense that the border is a place that has been pretty much destroyed by men, you know. And the characters in my story are, the, the men in my story are having to deal with this world that they destroyed and trying to fix this world. And the women in my story, in Tears of the Truffle Pig, while the men are trying to deal with this world that they have broken, the women in the story are building a different world, are, 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 are busy building a new world from scratch. So those, these themes I carried over to my next project after, you know, deal, after writing Tears of the Truffle Pig, it was very, very... Uh, it weighed very heavily upon me to deal with this very, very uh, masculine, terrible things, you know. And now I'm kind of trying to take a different approach. And, I mean, I have been trying for this other project. So hopefully, you know, I'll, I'll be finishing it within the next four or five months and we'll see what happens, you know. But I also have various short stories and I'm still kind of on the fence of what my next book will be, either short stories or a novel, so... Amazing. Thank you, Fernanda. Well, thank you, Frederick. For thank you for me joining me. Uh, this ends our uh, Professor Latinx podcast. And um, gosh, I hope um, we can have you back when those uh, other projects are published. I hope so. I hope so, too. Yeah, I hope. I, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what the next projects are. Yeah. Yay. All right. Thanks. Thank thanks. you so much, Frederick.